Enterprise Management 360, your main source for tech news, analysis, podcasts, and videos for the enterprise. Hi, and welcome to this EM360 podcast. I'm Richard Steenan, Chief Research Analyst at IT Harvest. I write books on IT security, work with IT security technology providers on their go-to-market, and I'm a trusted advisor to CISOs and their teams. IT Harvest is an industry analyst firm that covers over 2,800 vendors in the cybersecurity industry. In today's episode, I'm being joined by Casey Ellis, founder, chairman, CTO at BugCrowd. And we're going to be discussing hacker culture and crowdsourcing critical vulnerabilities, especially looking at the human element of this and the benefits of industries opening themselves up to these methods. Welcome, Casey. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Casey, why don't you tell us, you know, about BugCrowd, what thought you had when you created it and how it operates? Yeah, for sure. So really BugCrowd was, you know, a product of growing up in in the hacker community. Um, I, I was doing that all through, you know, childhood and, and so on. Uh, basically finished high school and went straight into a pen testing role. And, you know, one thing led to another. I got it into my head. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. The problem that I wanted to solve uh, that, that ultimately led to, to bug crowd was twofold. One was the fact that yeah, there's not enough talent and, and the ability to connect to talent to be able to outsmart the adversary. It's just not going to work. The, the, the math is wrong. Um, and in the meanwhile, you've got this incredible community of, of you know, people that think bad but do good. They're, they're operating in good faith, like the community that I, I came from, who were essentially waiting at the table for an invite but, but unplugged from where the problem existed. So... You know, the, the thing that, that catalyzed bug crab was really this question of like, how do you connect the latent potential of, of the white hat community and its creativity and intelligence with the unmet demand of the cybersecurity market and the need for, for answers to the questions that, that people have. Um, around the same time, you know, bug bounties uh, were starting to pop up and, and companies like Facebook and Google were starting to talk about them. So that gave us a really good anchor point to basically explain the fact that like not all hackers are terrible. There is benefit to be you know, gained from crowdsourcing and, and connecting in this sort of way. And yeah, that was, that was, feels like a million years ago and yesterday all at the same time, but a lot's happened since. Yeah. You know, I, I always respected the, every big antivirus company I talked to had those researchers and they were extremely well paid and they had most of them graduated to the point where they could live anywhere in the world they wanted to and they just sat at their computers all day you know looking at stuff and and doing the research um so it, it's an that's an attractive position but it's just like getting into the nba right there's millions of people who are great um, but can't make the all-star team most definitely. so t tell us sets the stage what's the state today of crowdsourcing vulnerability discovery is it still you know uh, an alternative a niche to the kinds of vuln research that large organizations do yeah it's a it's a fantastic question i think there's there's two there's two tracks um of of, of growth one one is the you know really disclosure and and almost like corporate social responsibility aspect uh that that's met with you know things like vulnerability disclosure programs so this idea of if we're on the internet, if the internet's a bad neighborhood, which you know we're all within the space clearly aware that it is, but I think the uh, the general public are becoming more aware of that as well at this point. Um, then the idea of having neighborhood watch just seems to make sense. Um, you know, we're seeing 
mandates basically pushing that um, all, all over the place coming from a regulatory and even a compliance framework um, standpoint now there's things like you know the DHS binding operational directive 2001 which bug crowd partners with CISA and DHS to deliver into US federal civilian agencies basically saying you have to do this like if you're on the internet you need to be able to receive security input from from the outside world so that particular side of it I think is is really it's almost like a snowball rolling down a hill um, it's just something that the internet's realized it needs to do and and you know that's basically catching on at this point in time. The other track is is really this kind of more focused and call it, you know, selective approach to crowdsourcing where, you know, you've got a particular set of skills you need or you've got a particular problem that you want to solve. And you know that the talent's out there to be able to help you with with defense and with answering the security questions you've got. You're just not able to connect to that talent in in an effective or an efficient way. Uh, and we've seen that grow like really steadily pretty much this whole time. Like that was the, the, the original thesis was this idea of how do we level the playing field and, and basically balance the, the equation um, when you consider the fact that there's so many different adversaries with so many different skill sets out there and we've got you know, the a limited ability to outsmart them uh, with, with technology and people that we hire and pay by the hour. So the need for that, I think, is, has really become obvious over the past you know, five or six years. Um, in general, cybersecurity itself is, is an issue of retail politics now, which wasn't the case when we started. Uh, and yeah, that's, it's you know, helping people overcome their, their preconceived notions of, of hackers, you know, of, of pen testers, of people that can think bad but do good when it comes to computers. Um, that's a steady steady march uh, I, I think the uh, the vulnerability disclosure piece actually helps with that but you know this idea of actually reaching out and giving people additional access doing things that look more like a crowdsource pen test or a crowdsource security engagement on a private basis uh, that's that's slowly gathering steam as well so you know i'm sure a lot of organizations question crowdsourcing to basically people you don't know um compare that to either hiring a professional pen test firm or an application security company to do code scanning and fuzzing attacks. Uh, how do you balance the decision between those two avenues? Most definitely. The, the way that we've approached that uh, from, from BugCrowd's perspective, you know, the company that I was running prior to starting BugCrowd was actually a pen testing consultancy in, in Sydney, Australia, which, by the way, is the, the funny accent y'all are y'all hearing right now. And, you know, the, that question that, that you just asked is one that I knew that we'd need to answer fairly quickly. It's, you know, how do you basically create a greater ability to satisfy a burden of trust, given that this is a, a fairly foreign and a fairly unique engagement model uh, for, for most organizations, especially at that point in time? So a lot of what we've done as an organization um, is, is really building out data on, on the community that we've got, you know, understanding who can do what from a skills standpoint, who has particular domain specialties, different, you know, focuses on, on technology, even exploit or, or, you know, threat intelligence types. But then also, like, how professional are they? How much can we trust them? Are they willing to, to go through a background check to get opportunities that, that require that type of thing? And really what we set out to do and have done since, uh, you know, we, we're going out and actually actively marketing a lot of what we do now as pen testing. You know, we wanted to set out to be able to satisfy the same kind of burden of proof that a pen testing shop would do if you are outsourcing to them as a, as a third party within your organization. Because when you think about it, people already trust, you know, hacker types that come in from the outside in a traditional construct before 
before we rocked up, right? Um, we're just basically, you know, accelerating that and, and, you know, radically increasing the scale and diversity of what you get access to. So, yeah, it's a really good question. It's one that comes up a lot. Um, I, I do think that there, there are things that need to be satisfied and, and, and we, you know, work very hard to match uh, the the level of of trust and the level of you know professional experience to the need of the customer. And sometimes you know it's it's a public program. In the case of what we do with CISA or the Department of Defense, it's public and and you don't need to do that because that's not actually the goal. Um, but if it's dropping in behind the wire, you know, passing out source code, doing all these different things that have this this requirement for for high levels of trustworthiness, then you know we've done everything we can to make that easy and possible. It's just a matter at that point of, of the customer doing their own risk assessment and seeing if the uh, the benefit is worth the cost. Yeah, I like to tell people, you know, if you if you don't have a program of some sort in place to do this, you are going to use crowdsourced pen testing because <laughs> the hackers are going to break into your system <laughs> and you'll spend a lot more on the incident response than you would have. Exactly. Patching. Then there's that. I mean, honestly, it's, you know, it's, it's a bit of a provocative way to answer that question. And, and I'm, I'm careful when I use it, but it's absolutely true. Um, you know, there's, there's a, there's a pen test going on right now on your organization. You're just not getting the report. So right. yeah, there, there's, right. the, there's, there's the reality of that. Um, Different organizations are at different stages, I think, of actually understanding that or even accepting that as, as a truth. And, and there are different things that, that you have to think about from, from an engagement standpoint when you start to do this sort of thing proactively. Uh, but, you know, when you think about just the pure risk ec economics that are in play, like, yeah, it's already happening. So th there, is a, there is an argument for, like, what's the difference? Um, that's not a great pitch, but it's logically true. <laughs> yep, yep. So surely a lot of companies think, you know, isn't it risky to expose my stuff to a bunch of hackers, even if we call them white hats, and, and you vetted them, so they are. Um, but there's always that financial risk that they're going to find such a good vulnerability that they could be tempted to sell it in the black market. You know, we know, you know, but we've seen reports anyways that you know, the NSA will pay a million dollars for a remote code execution on an iPhone. Um, if, if, you know, would Apple pay somebody a million dollars for discovering that and disclosing it responsibly? Mm. It's, yeah, this is, a, this is another interesting one. It's something that I've always found fascinating about the difference between offensive and defensive uh, vulnerability procurement economics. You know, when you, when you buy a bug for the purpose of offense, your, your goal at that point is to keep it alive. Because what you're going to do is create a product from it, use that for surveillance or cybercrime or whatever it is that you, you're off, off doing with that information. And that changes the value of that vulnerability at, at its initial discovery and, and transfer from the person who knows it to the person that wants it, right? In the case of defense, basically once you've acquired the information and validated it, um, your job is to then go off and kill that that bug. Uh, and, and the value chain... Is, is quite different. It, it's it's quite a bit shorter. Um, and this is, you know, I, I believe one of the reasons why in general, especially when there's, you know, a potential nation state buyer at the table, you see about a 30% reduction in, in the defensive price or offer compared to the offensive side. And it is in some ways an arms race. You know, the, the, the more difficult it is to find these issues, the more mitigations improve, you know, the more resilient a target space gets, logically, the more you have to offer to incentivize someone to overcome those difficulties to get the outcome that you're trying to buy at that point in time. So we see that dynamic on the offensive side and the defensive side. 
to answer your question, you know, what if they sell the vulnerability to the bad guys? The other thing that's interesting that what I just explained uh, sets up is is really, you know, the prisoner's dilemma in a lot of ways. Like if you and I both find a vulnerability in in a third third person system, you know, you're going to report it to them in, in context of their bounty program. I'm going to go off and try to do something sketchy with it. If you get there first, or even if you don't and you find it after the fact, I then lose my opportunity to collect the bounty for that that particular vulnerability. And then once it gets fixed, I lose the opportunity to monetize it from an offensive standpoint as well. So there's this interesting kind of inbuilt protection that, you know, still you've got to be able to get people past this this almost like emotional hurdle of like, what if a bad guy does a bad thing? Um, but when you think about what you're actually solving, like once you've got the information, it doesn't really matter that much where it come where it came from. You know, obviously going back to what I said before, if we're providing trust to organizations, we we do that because it's absolutely important to do that. But when you think about it from a purely functional standpoint, like once you've got the information, you can act on it. That's that's basically job done. So I really love what you're laying out here. What kind of organizations? should be talking to you immediately? You know, is there a sweet spot in size or industry vertical? And should IT Harvest, who's launching an app, should they reach out to Bug Crowd or should I just hire a pen testing firm? Yeah, for sure. I, I think I think everyone really should reach out to us or, or at the very least look seriously into instantiating a, a vulnerability disclosure policy on, on their company. So, you know, that's distinct from from crowdsourcing and, and getting people to actively come in and do a test that has different kind of conditions around it and so on but yeah this idea of basically saying if you see something say something um making sure that the policy is structured in a way that keeps everyone happy from a legal standpoint and then making sure that on on the receiving side you've got the infrastructure in place to actually receive that information and act on it in general i think you know in, in your answer to, to pen testing and doing like a bug bounty or even a private crowdsourced or, or multi-sourced assessment, that's really going to come down to like what you need to answer from a risk you know, assessment and risk understanding standpoint. But also like, frankly, how much capacity, how good are you at fixing things? Yeah, like some organizations have got a lot of work to do when it comes to even prioritization of vulnerabilities, let alone getting them into the product pipeline and actually seeing stuff get fixed. So that's... That's one of those ones where I, I don't view like bug bounty quote unquote as a silver bullet because if you don't have the ability to actually act on the information that you're getting, you know, I think Katie Mazuris refers to it as, as bug indigestion and it's absolutely a thing. You know, at, at that point, I think the idea of crawl, walk, then run, you know, get an understanding of where your risk posture is up to, start to put things in place to be able to deal with that information more efficiently and more proactively um, in, a, in a rational way for, for your organization and then dial it up from there. I'm very interested in, you know, I help a lot of young people who want to get into security, right? It's yeah. super common and a lot of them are taking pen testing classes in college and stuff in high school even. Um, I tend, unless they're, you know, they've got the right mentality of a hacker, I tend to push them, you know, in other directions, right? Because it's a huge industry and there's lots of things to do. Yeah. But is this a direction that I should be suggesting to them? Is it, uh, how do you build a career on being a good researcher and bug discoverer? 
Yeah, a bug hunter, and actually you called out a really important distinction at the end there. I do think there is a difference between someone who's like all the way down the rabbit hole doing security research and someone who's a bug hunter. Someone who's thinking about things through the lens of functional or security-focused QA or bugs with benefits is what I sometimes like to jokingly call them, right? Because there are elements of it that you can learn through the career path of, of a QA engineer or even someone yeah. who's a developer. Uh, you know, some of the best car hackers that, that we that we work with in the automotive industry came from what the car hacking community refers to as car hacking, which is very different to how we think about it in security. Um, you know, they're looking at how to modify, how to pull things apart and putting it back together. It's almost the true essence right. of, of hacking, you know, in its original context. But when you overlay the ability to think adversarially, on top of that, all of a sudden they can do a lot of stuff because they they understand, you know, how that um, that t- technology domain works. So you know, there's a million different roads to Rome. I, I I'm obviously biased towards offense because that's just something that you know I've spent a lot of time doing and and helping people into into careers around. Um, I do think it's it's valuable from a defensive standpoint. You know, in in my career history, I've I've worked as a solution architect and a, a CISO as well. And that was actually when I formed the opinion that having at least some understanding of how offense works and what's actually possible really very clearly informs, you know, how you prioritize defense and, and how you think about how to approach that rationally on, on the defender side. You know, and that can look like a lot of things, blue team, architecture, um, threat hunting, all of, all of those different kind of domains spawn out from that. Once you know what's possible to begin with, I think your, your overall view of, you know how real the boogeyman is, and and what it's capable of, um, is is informed by that. I mean, from a general, and I'll give you a general answer as well, just in terms of like young people getting in, into a career. Like one of the things that I always give as advice is to basically taste test as much of it as you possibly can, because uh, because I, I really do believe that you know cybersecurity as a profession is is best informed by the things that you get excited about personally. And, and you know the things that kind of draw out that that you know spark of, of interest, that spark of being able to think creatively and, and work in the way that we do to outsmart the adversary. That's why we're all here. So being able to look around into as many different domains as you've got time to, uh, and and work out where that connection lights up. That's the general advice I'll give young people around security in general. And offense is a subset of that because then you might look at like web technologies or embedded or. You know, there's a push around um, offensive and adversarial machine learning and AI because there's a huge gap in that space right now. That's yeah. if you're interested in that, then go check it out because um, it might just stick. I get super excited about that question, by the way, because I just you know the pursuit of potential in this space I think is such a it's such a fun thing to be involved with, and I, I do actually think it's vital to being able to continually you know do our best to stay ahead of the adversary because they're they're innovating. And, and they've got an ecosystem that acts like crowdsourcing. 100%. They're all, all working on the, in the same cyber crime community. Working for them. The, yep. uh, I, I see a lot of people on Twitter and their, even their LinkedIn profiles um, who get to claim credit for, you know, winning a bug bounty. Yeah. And it seems like it's a tremendous credential if you are looking for a full-time job. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's one of those things where... You know, I, I, I've got an interesting view on this because I, I basically did, you know, six weeks of a science degree and then actually dropped out, um, got a network engineering 
uh, apprenticeship and that's effectively where my pen testing career started because I, I started hacking things realized i could do that uh and and get paid for it and all my christmases came at once and i was you know off to the races so i've got a a, a bit of a you know colored view on on the role of education I, I fully believe in it and like i lecture at universities now all those different things um but it's not the only road to rome yeah this this idea of like if we've got such a stark skill shortage in in the security industry to begin with, and then we've got this growing, you know, breadth of of threat actor that we have to try to outsmart, having basically a proof of of what you've been capable of um, in in a real world setting, I think is is incredibly powerful. Um, we see a lot of we see a lot of companies look for that. We've seen you know, Bugcrowd's had this kind of informal recruiting like undercurrent where customers have uh, basically built out security teams based on people that have really lent in and been effective in their bug bounty programs. So, Oh, that's cool. I like that. I like that. And as a side note, I could say I spent six years wasting my life getting an engineering degree in, you know, in the mechanical world. And here I am now. I've never taken a class in computers or security. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, well, I, I mean, on that point, though, I, I am a firm believer in in adjacent skill sets. You know, when you think about cybersecurity as a as a domain, like we're really all basically here because of unintended consequence, right? Like people don't build things for them to be attacked by someone who's not a direct competitor in the market, and and no one really plans to to make a mistake in the first place. So. There's such a incredible degree of variability and reasons for those anti patterns existing in in software in the first place. That's where you know you coming in with an engineering lens. That's going to inform your view on how security works. Like how do, how do people make decisions around design? You know what are the human incentives behind that? What does that likely create as a as a highly you know risky or potential condition that that could cause failure in the future? You know, we see people come in from like music, you know, the, this idea of <clears throat> creativity and, and math kind of converging. If you're a musician, I think there's a there's a tie in to people that are good at cybersecurity just because that's how their brain's wired and that's part of their experience that they bring to it. So that's another one I could go on for ages about, but it's an interesting one. Yep. Same with uh, recording artists, you know, yeah. because they love the tech gear for the most part. Yep. And 100%. even, you know, digital artists, right? They're they love technology and they, they can apply their new thinking to it. This has been so great, Casey. I want to thank you for your thoughts on this episode about crowdsourcing critical vulnerabilities. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode. If you're looking for more information, make sure you head on over to bugcrowd.com.